And as you take your seat, you can open with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 this morning on this first Sunday of Advent. I've suspended the series through the book of Romans until we get through the four Sundays of Advent in order to focus on some passages that will remind us of the season and uh, speak to our hearts, Lord willing, about all that it represents. In Galatians, Paul is writing to a number of different churches, predominantly made up, almost exclusively made up, to of Gentiles who have come to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And throughout the book, he's trying to impress upon them the importance of focusing on Christ alone and not going back and practicing some elements from Judaism, adding certain things from the law of God. Paul is basically telling the Galatians, if you go backward like that, you're certainly not going forward in your understanding of the gospel. In fact, you are entering in uh, to a trap yourself. When we come to chapter 4, I believe the first seven verses give us a beautiful centerpiece of this particular letter because they stress the fact that we were once slaves under the law of God, but then Christ came to give us salvation and to secure it for us. And subsequently, he sent his Holy Spirit to make us sons and daughters of God. If I were to put this particular message in a sentence statement, it would be this. Advent reminds us that God has come to end our slavery, secure our salvation, and adopt us as his sons and daughters. We're going to look at those three particular items this morning, our slavery in verses 1 through 3, our salvation in verses 4 and 5, and then finally our sonship in verses 6 and 7. So along with the synopsis of the message, join me in prayer now. Let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus in Him only. And we believe in the power of Your Holy Spirit moving on our hearts to teach us of things heavenly all about You. And so, Lord, bless our time of study together. And we'll give You the praise and glory for all that You will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice our slavery. And Paul outlines this in verses 1, 2, and 3. Paul tells us that under the law of God, which again is a general theme of this epistle, we're like an heir during childhood. And so you have to imagine, uh, picture a child who is an heir to a very large estate. And one day it'll all be his. Indeed, it is already his by promise from his father, but not yet in experience, because he is still a child. And during his childhood, although he is the Lord of the entire estate, Paul says he does not differ at all from a slave. In other words, one of the other translations says he's no better than a slave. Here's the heir, a parent, to receive this entire estate, and yet 
when he is young, when he is a child, he's no different than a slave in the household. How do we know that? Verse 2, he will remain in a sort of bondage. Paul says he's under guardians and managers who act as controllers of his person and property. They order him about. They tell him to go do this and go do that. Pick up your clothes off the floor, polish your shoes, etc. And he will remain in this bondage until the date set by the father. Until the father says, it's time. It's time. You've come of age and it's time for you to receive your inheritance. But for now, he's under restraint. And he has no significant liberty. Now, Paul takes this in verses 1 and 2, this word picture, this metaphor, and he applies it to us. He applies the child-heir metaphor to us in verse 3. Even in Old Testament days before Christ came and when we were under the law, we were heirs, heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. But we had not yet inherited the promise. We were like children during the early years of our childhood. And this childhood was a form of bondage. What was the bondage? We know, of course, that it was the bondage to the law. For this was our custodian, according to Paul in chapter 3, verse 24. And from the condemnation of the law, we needed to be redeemed. Simply put, as an heir in the custody or is in the custody of guardians and managers until a date set by the father so also we as heirs of divine promises are in bondage to the law of God until we experience release from the law according to the father's perfect timing now Paul uses a little bit of unusual language here he says our bondage is we were under the elemental things of the world Here the law is equated with the elemental things of the world. Uh, The Greek could point to that or it could point to eternal spirits of the universe. That's what some of your other translations would say. We don't know all that Paul is trying to communicate, but we might say that Paul is saying, look, you're under bondage. Now those who are Jews know you're under the bondage of the law. He who doesn't do these things, he who doesn't practice these things will be judged by them. But these Gentiles could have been under the understanding that even though they were without the law of God, they had the law of God written on their heart. They knew inside of themselves, just like Romans 1 teaches, that the law of God is upon all consciences, upon all hearts. Your conscience has a tendency to remind you of what is right and what is wrong. And Paul is saying, in essence, that's true of the Gentiles. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're going to find yourself in bondage. It could also point to the spirit of the age. Another translation says the rudimentary teachings or principles. Things like, you only go around once in life, you need to get all the gusto you can. (laughs) Things like, Cash is king. Money, sex, and power, celebrity, the things that our world celebrates. Paul is saying you're under the bondage of these things. 
In fact, he says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through the philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. He also says in Colossians 2.20-23, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to such decrees? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. See, that smacks of the Old Testament law under Moses. And so we have a very unusual soup going on here, I believe. It could be worldly philosophies. It could be a misuse of the law of God. And given the background of Galatians, I have a tendency to see that particular point. Paul is saying, look, you're under bondage. Whether you have the law or whether you don't have the law. And those who don't have the law are under the bondage of this world. They're under the bondage of the law, but the world is condemning them. Because the law does condemn us as lawbreakers and rebels. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the law confirms our inability to keep and practice God's commands. I mean, who in their right mind could look at the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and ever say, I kept all these? No. The law expresses and exposes the corruption inside of our hearts. And so in summary, Paul is saying we're under bondage and slavery of the law because of our sins, and there is absolutely nothing we can do to deliver ourselves from this slavery. Now, we won't appreciate these truths until the Lord reveals himself to us and shows us the depth of our sin. And that's true of good people and bad people. You know, the nice and the naughty for Christmas time. <laughs> we won't appreciate this truth until the Lord reveals himself to us and shows us the depth of our sin. Consider a good guy, like Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah, in the early chapters of his prophecy, he was in the king's court. He was a prophet of God. He probably could tell you, theoretically, I am a sinner. But it wasn't until he entered into the temple in Isaiah 6 where he saw that magnificent vision of God and he heard the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy. And you know the rest of the story. Isaiah was stricken in his own heart. He may have understood that he was a sinner theoretically, but right at that moment it was experiential. He knew that he was a sinner in front of a holy God, and he needed salvation, which he couldn't furnish. I think about a bad guy like King Nebuchadnezzar. He interacted with Daniel in the early part of the book, but in chapter 4, this man, who was very full of himself, very arrogant, very proud, began to say, look at this magnificent Babylon that I have built for my glory. I've done it all. And God struck him, and God sent him out like an animal into the pasture land for quite some time until the Lord had mercy and brought him back. That changed his life. He began to realize what God saw whenever he looked at Nebuchadnezzar. And that's true of us. We can look at ourselves and we think we're okay. I'm better than this guy. I mean, I've never been arrested. I don't steal. I don't cheat on my taxes. But when we put ourselves under the microscope of God's holiness, 
That's when things change, and we get a real true perspective that there is absolutely nothing I can do to make myself righteous before God. Then we become thankful. Like David in Psalm 32, how blessed is he who is forgiven of their sin. You know, when I was younger, growing up in Florida, we didn't have any mountains. You know, Florida's flat. It's great for running, but not sightseeing. And I remember the first time I went to North Carolina, and I got to see these mountains, you know. And I went snow skiing, and I thought, man, this is really great. That's what a mountain looks like. Well, years later, I went out to visit my son and his family in Denver, Colorado. And down lower than that, I began to see the great Rocky Mountains. And I remember hiking and being out of breath and then realizing now I've seen a mountain. Before I thought I'd seen it, but I hadn't seen a mountain. Not like this. No, it overwhelmed me. And that is true of our sin, ladies and gentlemen. The reality of our sin must not remain purely academic. We need to go before the Lord and say, show me my sin. Help me to understand how deep my need is. So that when I say with David, how blessed is the man who is forgiven of his sin, I say it sincerely. And I say it because that is what I truly feel and believe in my heart. Paul says, this is our slavery. The law condemns. And the law leads us to see our need for Jesus Christ alone. And that is our salvation. If you look at verses 4 and 5, that is the second movement of our passage. These verses teach that God has sent his only begotten son to do two things, to redeem us and to adopt us as sons and daughters. What is emphasized in verse 4 is the qualifications of Jesus to be our Savior. First, in verse 4, it says, In the fullness of time, in other words, at the right time, at the perfect time, God sent his Son. God sent his Son. This points to the full deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not a created being. He was begotten of his Father, not made. And when he came into the world, he was 100% deity in a body. He's God's only natural-born son. All other sons and daughters have to be adopted. But that's what the Bible means in John 3.16. God's only begotten son, his only natural-born son, came into the world. And then he goes on to say in verse 4 again, born For the Son of God came, born of a woman. This points not to his deity, but to his humanity. He is fully man as he is fully God. We read about that this morning in our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 1. That Jesus is the infinite God-man. Not 50% human and 50% divine. 100% human. 100% divine. Two natures in one person. Without any confusion. Without any mixture. Without any separation. Or division. It absolutely blows your mind. He is fully God and he is fully man. Just as he was born and laid in a manger, as we read this morning in Matthew 1 to Mary and Joseph. But he was born miraculously. And he was the one whom the prophets would say, Emmanuel 
is with us. God is with us. And that's why he received that name. But notice it goes on in verse 4 to say he was born of a woman. He was also born under the law. Like all other human beings, Jesus Christ was subject to the demands of the law of Moses. He was born under the law, that is, of a Jewish mother into a Jewish nation and subject to Jewish law. And as, all, as with all human beings, perfect obedience was demanded. Throughout his life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law. And he succeeded where others before him since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. Now you think about that. The divinity of Christ means that as a man, he never broke the law. He obeyed the commandments fully and completely. There was never a sin in him, in thought, word, or deed. As Nick prayed a little while ago, I don't know that we can go 24 hours without sinning. Even when we get up in the morning, whether it's a thought or word or deed, something comes out because of the corruption inside of us. And whenever we see those ten words, the law of God, what it should do is drive us to the bosom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the main intention of the law is to show us that we cannot keep it. God's main fundamental intention of the law is to demonstrate how far short we fall of those ten words. But Jesus Christ came, and so in his divinity and his humanity, he furnished the righteousness of Almighty God. You see, Christ had to be divine because his blood had to be perfect when it was spilt on the mercy seat. Not only on this side of heaven, but the Bible teaches in Hebrews the mercy seat in heaven, the real authentic one. The one on the earth was merely a model. Christ had to shed his perfect blood on the mercy seat. But he was also 100% human. That is, he took upon himself our flesh. When Jesus Christ was crucified on Calvary, he was crucified as a living man. He was crucified as one who took our sins upon himself and died. That was the requirement. God is holy. Every sin must be paid for. And Jesus Christ went to the cross in order to spill his blood to cover your sins and mine, but also to secure righteousness because he lived a perfect life. And so when I come to the claims of Christ, I need to do two things. One, realize I cannot pay for my sins. As Jonathan Edwards used to say, we're going to pay for every last one of our sins. He used to say that I pity those who are uh, in hell. And somebody in hell is going to pay all that they can and all that they are to make the number of their sins one less. Because there will be payment. I could never pay for all my sins, not even in the past, but in the future. Neither can you. That's what Christ did. He made atonement for all of your sins. And because of his perfect life on earth, he is able to clothe you in righteousness. God Almighty demands righteousness, which we lack and only Christ can provide. And so when we trust him by faith, he makes atonement for our sins, and he clothes us in that righteousness that we must have. And that 
is what redemption is all about. But it doesn't stop there. If you look at verse 5 with me, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Our redemption, purchased by Christ alone, leads to our adoption. And the Father adopts us into his forever family. And see, instead of God's enemies, now we're no longer God's enemies, deserving of his wrath. We become beloved sons and daughters of God. Once again, this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. We're not just individuals, nameless individuals, who are following some deity and get accepted. No! We are brought into what Paul calls in Ephesians 5 as beloved children. Walk in love as beloved children. Instead of God's enemies, we become his children. We're born again and raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly realms. Don't ever forget that in Ephesians 2. You live here in this life. You and I live in this life. But spiritually speaking, we've already been raised and we are seated at the right hand of the Lord with Jesus. I think that's what Paul might have had in mind when he spoke about the third heaven. You remember that in the Corinthians and he spoke about his experiences? I think those were levels of fellowship. I believe that Paul saw himself as seated already. And that's why he could say, I don't know what is best, to go on and be with the Lord or stay here with you. Because he saw that reality, that this life is not all there is. That there is a God who has made himself known in the person and work of Christ, and he calls sinners to himself, that you might experience eternal life, not just in the future, but right now. Because you know him, and he elevates you, and he opens your eyes to spiritual realities, one of which is that you're already seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's a wonderful thing. You can go through life not fearing death. You can go through life with joy because you know you're already with the Lord. For as long as he has you down here, you're already with him. And when he returns bodily one day, we will in fact 100% go to be with him physically. Adoption is a wonderful thing, but it costs a lot. I was reading a story the other day about Todd Wilson. He's a theologian. He says, quote, When my wife and I adopted twins from Ethiopia, it was an extensive, intensive, and indeed expensive process. We had to travel a remarkably long way to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. I'm sure I destroyed that. Where our boys lived. Once in that country, we still had more to do, which wasn't always easy or straightforward. But imagine in if my wife and I had sent our firstborn son, Ezra, to Ethiopia to adopt our twins for us. Just imagine if we knew the only way that he was going to be able to adopt Adis and Rager was to let Ezra be publicly executed while in Ethiopia. What if the only way to adopt our twins was to sacrifice our firstborn? Yes, that's precisely what the father did in sending the son into the world and onto the cross so that we might receive the adoption of sons. If we're God's sons and daughters, we enjoy that privilege only because of adoption. God went to great lengths to secure our adoption. He spared absolutely no expense. In fact, he paid the highest price by giving his son so that we could be made right with him and become his children by faith. 
And recognizing this, is it any wonder that the scripture says, quote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Yes, it was an expensive price, and our God paid it through the blood of his only Son. Well, that is our slavery, and that is a summary of our salvation, our redemption and adoption. Notice the third thing, and that is the sonship in verses 6 and 7. We also could say daughterhood. Uh, There is a double sending you see in this passage. And you can observe the Trinitarian reference. God sent his Son into the world, and secondly, he sent his Spirit into our hearts. He sent his Son into the world, and he sent his Spirit into into our hearts. And entering our hearts, the Spirit immediately begins to cry, Abba, Father. Or the parallel passage in Romans 8, 15 and 16 puts it, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. It is the word that Jesus himself used in intimate prayer to God. J.B. Phillips, in his translation, renders it, Father, dear Father. And thus, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by sending his spirit to live in our hearts. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship. He sent his spirit that we might have the experience of sonship. This comes through affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer through Christ, in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude of using the language, not of slaves, but of sons. And so the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, witnessing to our sonship and prompting our prayers, is the precise privilege of all of God's children. Notice the language, verse 6, because you are sons that God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. There's no other qualification. There's no need to recite some formula or even a prayer or to strive after some experience, or to fulfill some extra condition. Paul tells us clearly that if we are God's children, and because we are God's children, God has sent his Spirit into our hearts. And the way that he assures us of our sonship is not by some spectacular gift or sign, but by the quiet inward witness of the Spirit as we pray. And so Paul concludes in verse 7. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. And this changed status is all a gift of God's grace. What we are as Christians, in summary, as sons and heirs of God, is not through our own merit. It's not through our own effort, but it's through God, through his initiative of grace, who first sent his son to die for us, and then sent his spirit to live inside of us. Do you know that, Jesus? Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith alone? Or are you trusting in your obedience to the law or something or someone else in order to redeem you? Nothing else will pay the price that God paid through his one and only son for your redemption and your adoption into God's forever family. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray this morning that you would move by your Spirit in our hearts. Uh, Lord, for those of us that have trusted Jesus Christ, I pray that you would confirm that and encourage us. And Lord, if there's those here that have never trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we pray for your Spirit to move with conviction 
Show them their sin, Lord, and show them the only hope they have is to flee and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Lord, do all these things and more, and we'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.